Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. Hey, so everybody, look, it's 2022. Happy New Year, people. After the abject horror shows that were the past two years, and especially the last week of 2021, in which we lost Joe Didion, Harry Reid, John Madden, and Betty White, for Christ's sake, I am tempted to say that it's hard to imagine that the coming year could be any worse. I mean, some better days must lie ahead, right? Some reprieve bestowed by the good Lord up in heaven or the demigods who preside over the realm of man. Some respite from the unimaginably horrific, the unprecedentedly awful, the no good, very bad, massively gargantuanly horse shitty run that we've all been enduring for what seems like forever. Some modest, incremental, teeny tiny improvement has to be inevitable, right? Well, unfortunately, if you believe that, I have six words for you. Don't fucking bet on it, bub. My feelings about this are not only rooted in the fact that the entire premise of this podcast is that all of this apocalyptic end time stuff we're going through is essentially the new normal. It's also connected to the fact that as far as I can see, there is no reason whatsoever to doubt the fundamental veracity of one of my all-time favorite political axioms. Good gets better and bad gets worse. And this week's episode of Hell and High Water speaks directly to this point when it comes to the bedraggled state and imperiled fate of American democracy, something that a lot of us, for most of our lives, believed was without doubt imperfect and in need of various reforms and fixes and improvements, but was fundamentally sound, robust, and going to remain intact for a good long while. But our guests today, both of whom have given this subject a lot of careful thought, beg to differ. And unfortunately, they are far from alone in being alarmed about where American democracy is headed. Take a listen first to Brian Kloss, Associate Professor in Global Politics at University College London and author most recently of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. The state of democracy in the United States is collapsing. Uh, it's uh, under enormous threats and the Republican Party has been taken over by authoritarians and we're in serious serious trouble. And then there's our second guest, Ann Applebaum, staff writer at The Atlantic and author, again most recently, of the aptly titled Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, who points out that when it comes to the structural political underpinnings of freedom and civil society, it ain't just in the good old U.S. of A. that things are mighty messed up. The state of American democracy is as poor and as weak and as divided as it is almost everywhere else in the world. Brian Kloss and Ann Applebaum are two of the most serious, formidable, astute, and trenchant observers, writers, and thinkers on the subject of democracy at work today. You probably know Kloss best from his regular TV appearances or from his columns in the Washington Post, but his deeper contributions and insights are to be found in his formidable body of scholarship on authoritarianism, U.S. foreign policy, and importantly, political violence, produced as he has charted a glittering academic course from Oxford to the London School of Economics finally to UCL. He is the author of four books, The Eerily Prescient, The Despot's Accomplice, How the West is Aiding and Abetting the Decline of Democracy, published in 2016, The Staggeringly Prescient, The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy from 2017, The Stunningly Prescient, How to Rig an Election from 2018, and now Corruptible. Each of these books is indispensable, 
If you care about the past, present, and future of democracy, you need to read them all. And after listening to Brian on our show, I am pretty sure you're going to want to, as undeniably scary as all four of them are. I first came across Ann Applebaum a lifetime ago when we were both starting out in journalism and working as colleagues in the hallowed halls of The Economist headquarters in London, where Anne, with her obvious brilliance, intellectual rigor, and razor-sharp pen, was immediately pegged for greatness. While I was universally pegged as headed for rehab or a lifetime of sleeping in bus shelters. The jury is still out when it comes to me, but everyone was right about Anne. Her first big book, Gulag, A History, a groundbreaking account of the Soviet concentration camp system, won her the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction in 2004. Since then, she has published two more authoritative histories, Iron Curtain, The Crushing of Eastern Europe, and Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, before producing Twilight of Democracy in 2020. In addition to cranking out these erudite tomes, Applebaum was also a longtime Washington Post columnist and member of the paper's editorial board before joining The Atlantic, and is currently a senior fellow at SICE at Johns Hopkins and at the Agora Institute, where she co-directs a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda. She is also, endearingly, the co-author of a cookbook from a Polish country house kitchen. The one book of hers I can say, with all due respect to Polish cuisine, I have not and will not read. With the one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection close on the horizon, we brought Applebaum and Koss together in late December to talk about that terrible day, what we've learned about it since, and what we still need to know and are counting on the House Select Committee to get to the bottom of, the implications of the sacking of the Capitol and Donald Trump's big lie about the 2020 election, the rising prospect of routinized political violence in this country, and what the future holds for democracy itself in America and around the world. If you happen to be wearing rose-tinted glasses right now, I suggest you take them off before listening to Kloss and Applebaum, as what they have to say will shatter those lenses and leave them lying in tiny shards on the ground. But it will also leave you with a clearer view of a future that promises, or actually threatens, a whole lot more of Hell and High Water. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, He's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, quote, I'm pushing it hard, I agree. Still, President Trump did not immediately act. Donald Trump Jr. texted again and again, urging action by the president, quote, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand, end quote. So we're here on Hell and High Water with two distinguished intellectuals, authors, journalists, Ann Applebaum and, and Brian Klassen. And I, I say often when I have guests on this program that I feel like a moron compared to them because my IQ is in double digits and almost all of theirs are in triple. And here we have two people who have a combined IQ in four digits. And so this is going to be a particularly humbling experience. Thank you guys for doing the show. We're going to talk about the state of democracy in America, around the world, but a good place to start there, I think, is the stuff that Liz Cheney read from those texts to Mark Meadows, we'll spend a little more time on in a second. And I thought of it was stunning. The Don Jr. thing is, I think, the most stunning thing of all of it. But before we get to that, I just want to ask both of you, and Anne, I'll start with you. Where were you on January 6th, 2021? On January 6, 2021, I was in my Polish country house and I was watching CNN and I watched the events unfold live as one could see them on television, which, of course, turned out not to be the full picture. But 
you know, the perspective was actually rather important because you could immediately see, even from halfway around the world, what a disaster it was both for the United States, but also for the reputation of the United States. Everybody immediately understood what had happened. And do you think, and I'll, Brian, I'll ask you this in a second, but Anne, I'll just stay with you for a second here. As a year has now passed, has your, I mean, obviously we've learned a lot, but I, I wonder whether your perspective has, how your perspective has changed. Does it seem appreciably worse now and more consequential or about the same or in any way less? I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but, but I still want to ask. No, my perspective has changed a lot. It looked on television on January the 6th like a kind of demonstration gone wrong, like a huge accident and the police weren't prepared and so on. As we've now come to understand in more detail what happened and particularly the events leading up to the day, now I understand that the event was planned, that it had a purpose, that the purpose of the demonstrations, the purpose of disrupting Congress was to delay Pence's declaration of the recognition of the results of the election so that Rudy Giuliani and that host of lawyers could continue to pursue various avenues that would allow them to to disallow or to change or to alter the results. And so I'm afraid, actually, it now looks quite a bit worse than it did then. It was actually part of a conspiracy. And although the conspiracy failed, it wasn't as badly planned as it looked. And a renewed version of it could well unfold again. And we'll get to all of that. And, you know, thank God just, you know, as always for Donald Trump's stupidity and incompetence because a slightly smarter and slightly more competent president at the time might have pulled it off. Brian, I ask you the same question. Anne is in Poland where she lives part-time. Brian, you're based in London. Were you in London when this happened on January 6th of 2021? Yeah, I was just south of London. We were under a hard lockdown, so I was staying at home. And yeah, the same sort of thing happened. I started to see signs that things were turning south and, and I put on CNN.com to watch the live events and everybody was texting me, you know, you need to turn on the TV. And the same sort of reaction in the sense that I wasn't as surprised that it happened because I think that Donald Trump was telegraphing for a very long time that this was what his plan was to try to, you know, disrupt the election. And I think a lot of people just think, oh, that's Trump just being Trump. And that's a mistake that many people have learned uh, is actually a very dangerous thing to dismiss. But, you know, I also think that as we've watched this unfold and the the details, the thing that I really have latched onto is there was this little glimmer of hope that I had in my head on January 6th that finally there's going to be a breaking point. Like the the little noises we heard on January 6th and 7th from people like Lindsey Graham, who said, that's enough, I'm done, that that was going to be the moment that the Republican Party repudiated Donald Trump, said he's he's leaving. There's no point in torpedoing our party for this guy anymore. Let's go back to democracy. And the really depressing realization that I think has conditioned my thinking going forward is that that lasted about a week. And the political gravity of the belief that everything in the Republican Party goes through Donald Trump because repudiating him is a death sentence in that party now, has conditioned every other aspect of thinking about the party's future that I've come across. And so everything comes back to that fundamental aspect of it's now become a litmus test for the party to back this authoritarian lie and to back Donald Trump in order to stay in the good graces of the Republican Party and to win Republican primaries. So I'm also much more pessimistic than I was on that day. 
It's interesting, of course, uh, unlike the two of you say, who were who got to watch this strictly on television, I was actually in Washington, D.C. And, and was watching it on television until the riot broke out. And then with the camera crew got up to Capitol Hill and spent a couple hours up there kind of in the thick of it. And boy, you know, as someone who's been in and out of Washington since I graduated college in 1987, I will say, Brian, I'm with you in the sense that I had been, you know, ring the alarm bells for a year about what Trump you know, trying to invalidate the election and claim it was rigged and, and do something bad. But the visceral reaction of seeing those people on the steps of the Capitol, seeing what was happening from close range and hearing flashbangs go off, something I had never quite, you know, I could, could have conceived of, but not really felt. And seeing it there was an incredibly jarring experience that I still don't think I've totally recovered from. You know, we've seen it with the committee is the thing that Ann talked about a second ago. There were a handful of people right around January 6th who said this was an attempted coup and people laughed at them and said, you know, you're being ridiculous. We're now a year later. We're like, oh, yeah, this was a pretty far reaching, pretty well coordinated thing. Not, again, incompetent in a lot of ways, but between Capitol Hill, the legal efforts, et cetera. But I want to stick with your thing, Brian, just because I have so little sound to make the point. And then I'll ask Ann what you think about this. You know, here are two people I want to play just a little more of a trip down memory lane, a sort of then and now sound. Here's that Lindsey Graham thing you talked about, Brian, and what he said on January 6th and what he said just a couple months later. Uh, Trump and I, have, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate it being this way. Oh, my God, I hate it. From my point of view, he's been a consequential president. But today, first thing you'll see. All I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. I've tried to be helpful. Yeah, I would just say to my Republican colleagues, can we move forward uh, without President Trump? The answer is no. I've always liked Liz Cheney, but she's made a determination that the Republican Party can't, can't grow with President Trump. I've determined we can't grow without him. So that's January to May of 2021. Took Lindsey Graham a few months. Here's Kevin McCarthy on January 6th. And, and within days, first year you hear McCarthy on January 6th, then within days, two different little pieces of sound that tell you how quickly he ran away from anything resembling, uh, I wouldn't even say courage, just stating the plain facts. Kevin McCarthy. That doesn't mean the president is free from fault. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding. I don't believe he provoked if you listen to what he said at the rally. I was the first person to contact him when the riots was going on. He didn't see it. What he ended the call was saying, telling me he'll put something out to make sure to stop this. And that's what he did. He put a video out later. So, Ann, I ask you, how do you explain what happened here? Because there was that moment that we just heard Graham and go Lindsey Graham and, and, and Kevin McCarthy, two guys not with a lot of spine, who in that moment stood up and said the right things and then quickly retreated to where they are. But there was that moment when people thought this would be the breaking point. The Republican Party, most of these people hate Donald Trump. They know he's a moron. They've said that privately for years. How is it that you think that Trump has managed to exert this kind of power with no platform and no place in the Republican Party, official place, out of office, down in Mar-a-Lago, no Twitter, no Facebook? And yet still this iron grip, in some ways, he controls the party more than he ever has. I mean, I think in order to understand it, you need to understand how personality cults work and have worked in other places. His power is his power over voters and to some extent his power over funders and his ability to raise money. And so, I mean, the deeper question is how it is that, you know, so many Americans have been bewitched by this very strange phenomenon. And I think to understand that, you have to understand the nature of polarization and tribalism, that for a large part of Americans, Trump has become simply a symbol of identity. You know, if you're with Trump, then you belong to that group of people and you 
you know, you follow certain kinds of news and you have certain kinds of relationships and you think certain things and they're comfortable in that world and they don't want it shattered. So, Brian, there's this tiny little cadre of Republicans who have been outliers led by Liz Cheney, someone who, you know, the left and and many people not even on the left, people who are just Democrats uh, in America have just despised for years and years and years. And now she's become in this limited way and maybe not limited, given the stakes here, kind of a hero. She in December not only read out in that dramatic fashion the texts from Don Jr. and from some Fox News hosts, and she has taken the lead on this committee and become the spokesperson for it and is driving, I think, strategically and tactically internally, you know, and she said a thing in December that caught a lot of people's ears. She's talked about Mark Meadows. She said his testimony would bear on another key question before the committee. Did Donald Trump through action or inaction corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes? That relates to a a felony charge, U.S. Code 1512. And everybody said, wow, like she's focused on maybe charging Donald Trump with a federal crime. So, her role can't be either politically legal or anyways, can't be overstated how important she is. Why do you think it is that Liz Cheney has been immune, almost uniquely immune to the kinds of forces that Ann just talked about? And given what I said a second ago and what, what Ann said about polarization, is it possible that the Democrats can for once put down its tribalism and make kind of common cause with Liz Cheney? because this is so important. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if she's going to defy the political gravity. I I expect she's going to have quite a lot of political consequences to deal with this. You know, the people who have defied Donald Trump in the Republican Party have seen their careers crash and burn, or they've had to reinvent themselves in a new career, you know, being an analyst on a more mainstream network rather than on Fox News or OAN. So who knows if Liz Cheney is angling to have an exit option where she makes a heck of a lot of money in a different capacity. Or perhaps she just cares about the country. And, you know, it's impossible as a person who's observing from afar to know what the real motivation is. But you're right to point that she's central. And she's central partly, well, I mean, predominantly, actually, because of calculations that Democrats have made, because they get to determine who's the visible you know, face of the investigation. And they've made a really smart calculation based on the fact, I think, that successful anti-authoritarian movements are big tents. They put aside you know, divisions around taxes or healthcare are the stuff that's supposed to divide us. And they say, we're going to fight for this one big thing. And I think that's exactly right. And I think it's so important too, that they've done this because it provides some level of, it's impossible to say that this committee is purely partisan. I mean, when Liz Cheney is the spokesperson from it, it's like, I mean, Dick Cheney, her father is the person who's like vilified by Democrats for so long. And yet all of a sudden you have this person who's also vilified by Democrats, who's leading the charge against the January 6th events in terms of the investigation. So it's a smart move politically. You know, I think in addition to the forces that Ann talks about, I also think there's two things that we have to highlight. One is the aspects of primaries in the Republican Party. I mean, most of these people understand that they can't lose a a general election. Most members of Congress don't live in competitive districts. The overwhelming majority are in uncompetitive districts. So they're responding to keep their jobs because the primary is where they're going to have somebody who's definitely pro-Trump if they buck the party line. But the other aspect, I I think this speaks to the voters, is this question of what the off-ramp is. Like after you've endorsed Donald Trump through the opening lines of, you know, Mexicans are rapists and the Access Hollywood tape and all these other things, you have to say all that stuff was not as bad as this, right? I was willing to go along with everything up until this point and now I've hit my breaking point. Cognitively, that's a really difficult thing for a lot of voters to do. 
And I think this is when you have those glimmers of hope of the Lindsey Graham statements, the Kevin McCarthy statements quickly being repealed, or you know, their, their sort of rhetorical retreat. What's happened is they have given too much credit to their voters. So when the Access Hollywood tape comes out, a lot of people think, oh, he's done. I might as well just criticize him because the whole country is going to turn on him too. They were wrong. The Republicans stayed with him. That happened on January 6th. They assumed that this was going to be so loathsome to even their base that they would turn on Trump, and they were wrong. The base stuck with him. So I think a lot of people have internalized the lesson that the base is with him forever. And Liz Cheney made a deliberate decision to simply break all at once. And it was this is it. I'm done. That was the impeachment vote. It was the January 6th investigation. And now once you've burned the bridge, there's no going back. So you might as well go all the way. <laughs> I think that's the dynamic at play here. And you think as you watch this unfold, just to kind of set the table, I guess, for what's about to unfold over the course of 2022 here, you know, this committee is on the clock and you watch their behavior, you watch what they're doing. There was a sense of great momentum in December because the courts seem to be doing what I think is the right thing and saying there are no plausible claims to executive privilege. All these documents should be released. You know, they've they've issued some contempt citations. There's been the, the, the ban and indictment. And yet, you know, there is obviously on the side of Trump, Trumpists, anybody involved in this, an effort to try to stall out the clock. And they've been very successful at doing that in many investigations in the past. So do you look at where we are and say, A, that the outcome of this committee and what it does is very important? Number one, do you think that's true? And number two, how optimistic are you right now just looking at the pace they're moving, if you think the work of the committee is important, that they're going to be able to get done what they need to get done in a time frame that is meaningful? So the realistic time frame is that this has to get done before next November, which is when it's likely for a lot of reasons that the Republicans will take over Congress. And of course, the Republicans will immediately shut down this committee. But I don't think for the Democrats to say, on the one hand, this was the worst thing that's happened to the country in terms of its democracy since the Civil War, which I, I believe is true. And to say, on the other hand, but we couldn't hold anyone to account within two years is going to be a good look. It's not going to be a good way to go into the midterms, but it's also not going to look good in the longer perspective of history. I think if they can't you know, speed it up and create some level of accountability realistically in the next three or four months, then the committee will be a failure. And, you know, I just, I'm not quite sure whether they realize that, you know, maybe some do and some don't. It also seems a little strange to I me. Mean, Cheney is the first one who's made it pretty clear that she's looking for indictments and that she thinks federal crimes were committed. I mean, it seems kind of obvious to the lay observers out here, you know, even not inside the United States, that federal crimes were committed. I mean, it was a coup attempt. Yes. But somehow, either because they're distracted by other things, because they have an economic program, because there are, you know, other things going on in Washington, the Democrats have not said that clearly. And I think that's a mistake. And I think it will loom larger as a mistake as the year goes on. I mean, it's an interesting question, Brian, because, you know, if you think about Trump's call to Raffensperger, you know, can you find me 11,000 whatever votes, right? I mean, a million people have said this, and it's obviously true. If that's not a crime, it should be a crime. And it probably, and it is a crime, right? I mean, people have cited what the, the relevant legal statutes are. And yet the Justice Department, Merrick Garland, has not moved to try to prosecute that case. Set aside even the insurrection, just that attempted election fraud case that was right there in front of their faces. And I wonder what you think about why that would be. I mean, I have a theory about it, which relates to 
what I guess is kind of anachronistic institutionalism of someone like Merrick Garland, who has taken all of these years in which we rightly said we don't want new incoming Justice Departments that are supposed to be independent of the political process. We don't want them to pursue criminal cases against previous administrations because that would set terrible precedent. The whole thing would become politicized and horrible. And yet in this circumstance, you want to say. It's doing violence to the black letter law, and it seems unwise and, as I said, anachronistic to kind of cling to some formalist notion of, well, we just don't do this. You know, we don't do this. That's not what we do in America when the stakes are what they are and when the crimes are so egregious. Yeah, you know, I mean, the Raffensperger call is is an interesting one for me because there's this dynamic that I think Anne and I have both remarked on since we both study the breakdown of democracy elsewhere where America has a blind spot when it happens to itself. So, you know, if you had an article in the New York Times that said, okay, the president of Togo or, you know, prime minister of Thailand picked up the phone and said, find me 11,000 votes to some, you know, regional election official, we wouldn't hesitate to say that that completely corrupted the entire election. It was a, it was a huge problem for manipulation of state power, and it was an attempt to rig the election and, and remain in power despite the verdict of the people. And yet there's sort of like this, this mincing of words that happens in the United States, like, oh, it was just Trump being Trump. He was just sort of riffing with him on the phone. It, it's bizarre how we have this blind spot. Now, when it comes to Merrick Garland and the inability to bring consequences, I don't think it's just Merrick Garland. I think it's Joe Biden as well. And I think what Joe Biden is doing which I think is a mistake, is I think he's trying to maintain that dynamic that he's prided himself on for a very long time of being like the guy who can work across the aisle, the bipartisan centrist. The problem I have with that is that if you try to engage in bipartisanship with an authoritarian movement, you're helping an authoritarian movement. I mean, at the end of the day, you're working with people who are trying to subvert democracy. So at some point, you have to make a decision, which is, okay, is it going to be better for us to be perceived as some sort of consensus figure when the consensus is with an authoritarian anti-democratic movement? Or are we just going to protect democracy, prosecute people who tried to subvert it, and deal with the electoral consequences because we care about the system more? And I, this is where I just, you know, anyone who studies democracy, its breakdown, the rise of authoritarianism will tell you, when you've lost democracy, rebuilding it is extremely difficult. I mean, right. it often doesn't happen. And if it does, right. it's probably decades down the line. Protecting it when you have power like the Democrats do is way easier. And I have been baffled why Biden isn't making this a central part of his message, holding a primetime press conference or a news address where he says, look, now the evidence is crystal clear. We have somebody who is trying to make sure that your voice didn't matter. They tried to stay in power, even though you told them it was time to go. Right. You know, we're going to prosecute people who do that. And if you don't agree with that, then you don't believe in democracy. I haven't heard that clear message from Democrats since January 6th. And I don't understand why, because it's so easy to understand. I think it's a winning message. You're never going to convince the pro-Trump Republicans. They're never going to vote for you. So you might as well, you know, go hard and try to make sure that this message is central to what you run on in 2022. I have one last topic before we take a break and move on to Brian, your book, and then to Anne's most recent book, which relates to Anne mentioned the role of propaganda. And we'll talk about that later on the podcast in other contexts. But I do want to just in this moment of the recent events, you know, there was Liz Cheney. She did read some texts, not just from Don Jr. and from lawmakers who were all freaking out on January 6th, but she read some texts from some Fox News hosts. And it was obviously she had Lori Ingram and Brian Kilmeade and Sean Hannity in real time acknowledging that what was happening was Donald Trump's fault, implicitly that it was his fault and explicitly saying he had to stop it and that his legacy was at stake. And they were unnerved enough 
which doesn't happen that often with Fox News hosts, that they felt like they had to go on air and sort of account for what they said in real time versus what they said on the air at the time. Now, they lied in that instance also. And I want to play here. Lori Ingram is the best example. I want to play this one last piece of sound here. What she said in the middle of December, December 14th, trying to explain these, this text that she sent saying, you know, you got to get him to stop it. She texted Mark Meadows. You got to get him to stop it. His legacy is at stake. She goes on the air in December and says, hey, wait a minute. This is what I here's my explanation. And then we'll also hear what she said actually on the night of January 6th. Let's play that. Both publicly and privately, I said what I believe that the breach of the Capitol on January 6th was a terrible thing. Crimes are committed. Some people were unfairly hounded and persecuted and prosecuted, but it was not an insurrection. The Capitol was under siege by people who can only be described as antithetical to the MAGA movement. Now, there were likely not all Trump supporters, and there are some reports that Antifa sympathizers may have been sprinkled throughout the crowd. And this is my question, right? People say conservatives don't trust the media. That's not true. They trust Fox News, you know, about as much as as liberals trust MSNBC and CNN. You know, they place great faith in it. It's clear that it's not just about the Fox News hosts being ideologically biased, which you could argue CNN hosts or MSNBC hosts are. They lied to their viewers. They lied to them in real time. And in this case, Ellen Ingham's lying to them now, trying to rewrite history about what she said at the time, which was in conflict with what she was texting at the time. And I guess I find that the strange thing. Like, why would it be that knowing that the media outlet that you rely on because you are ideologically sympathetic to them and, and you believe what they believe and they echo back to you what you believe and you're in that loop of epistemic closure, why would like learning that that these hosts that you rely on and trust lied to you and are lying to you repeatedly? Again, which is something no one accuses MSNBC or CNN hosts of doing to their viewers. They say they're biased, but not liars in that way. Why would that not blow the whole thing up? Why is this not the end of it all where, where suddenly, I mean, I'm not saying they're going to become liberal viewers, but why do they not lose faith in Fox News in these circumstances? Because the lies are consistent. The lies tell a consistent story that is the story that people want to hear. So the lie is that you know, bad things happened at the Capitol, but it wasn't an insurrection. I've never said it was an insurrection. And there was, of course, an, an Antifa element. And remember that for Fox viewers and for Trump supporters, the idea that Trump instigated an assault on the Capitol could indeed be very troubling. I mean, it would indeed, you know, wreck their vision of him as a great patriot and of themselves as great patriots. And what Laura is offering them is a way to get out of that. So if it wasn't really an insurrection and if there were just a few crazy people and if there were a lot of Antifa people there, and also if, as Tucker Carlson claims, you know, really the FBI probably organized it, then they can be, you know, their consciences are clear. You know, it's not their fault. So what Laura is offering them is a way to stay consistent, stay inside the movement, not have any doubts, not feel any, any dissonance. And, you know, from what we know of people who are true believers, what they're looking for is a world without dissonance. They're looking for clear explanations. They're looking for, you know, a logical story. And what Fox News keeps offering them is a way to feed the story and to stay inside the story. We'll talk about it a little more later in the in the broadcast. But I yes, I hear that. That makes sense to me. If that is right, it is really it, it just gives another sense of something that I do think is widely misunderstood, which is just how powerful the, the right wing echo chamber really is and how difficult it is for people like us 
and people in other forms of media who sit around and try to broadcast this message. And we all say, God, you know, it's the Atlantic doesn't have a feature on, on how democracy is on the line. And I'm all for, I mean, like I'm glad Jeff Goldberg ran that issue of the magazine. I'm glad Andy wrote for it. And I'm glad that Bart Gelman wrote for it. I want everybody to scream it from the rooftops. I do it almost every day on television. And I know that the millions of people who are in that right wing bubble, it's not getting through to them at all. They are so far, and this is not even the Facebook people, but just the people in the Fox News and OANN and Newsmax universe are, we are not breaking through to them in any way. And the the dynamic you're describing there is part of why I think, and makes it incredibly troubling. Okay. We're going to take a break right now, play some ads, and we'll come back and talk with Brian Klaas and, and Applebaum. We'll talk about Brian's book, which is a fantastic, fantastic read called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. We're going to get answers to both of those questions. Who gets power and how it corrupts us after this break? And we are back with part two of Hell and High Water with Brian Kloss and Ann Applebaum. Brian, you have a book, a new book out, which is called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. I want to play Joe Biden talking at the United Nations General Assembly about corruption, and then we'll talk a lot about the book. Let's play Joe Biden. Corruption fuels inequality, siphons off a nation's resources, spreads across borders, and generates human suffering is nothing less than a national security threat in the 21st century. Around the world, we're increasingly seeing citizens demonstrate their discontent, seeing the wealthy and well-connected grow richer and richer, taking payoffs and bribes, operating above the law, while the vast majority of the people struggle to find a job or put food on the table. So that's a pretty optimistic, I mean, in some ways, a pretty optimistic view that we're increasingly seeing citizens demonstrate their discontent. It seems to me that that may be true. There may be more discontent. But the, the thing that Biden's talking about there, the wealthy and well-connected growing richer and richer, taking payoffs and bribes, operating above the law, that seems to be on the march, right? And your book kind of gets into the questions of who these people are and why they are that way. But am I right to think that the problem of corruption in all of its various guises is just much worse now than it was when we were children? Well, I think it's much more visible. <laughs> I think that there's a lot more exposés of it. Right. I think there's plenty of corruption throughout the decades, and in some places, it was much worse. But I think you know what what I'm trying to explain in the book is why we have such awful leaders. Basically, yes. You know, I mean, there's very few things that Democrats and Republicans agree on. I think most of them will agree for very different reasons that our cohort of leadership is not great. You know, what what I was trying to do is to understand how power attracts the wrong kinds of people, how systems can put that tendency on overdrive and how we can fix it. So the germination of the book was I started my sort of professional career studying the breakdown of democracy, the rise of authoritarianism and so on. And I met with all these unsavory people around the world, you know, despots and war criminals and, and so on, rebel leaders, coup plotters, all this. Then I spent <laughs> about five years of my life condemning Trumpism and warning that the same thing could happen to the United States, which culminated in January 6th, of course. And with the book, I made a decision not to put Donald Trump's name in the pages at all. Right. And the reason for that is because I think some of the dynamics involved with power and how the wrong kind of people seek it and how it corrupts the best kind of people is much more universal than that. So my approach was to sit down with lots of unsavory characters from cult leaders to bioterrorists to coup plotters and former despots and so on, and then bring in the research from psychology evolutionary biology, economics, behavioral economics, political science, et cetera, and figure out 
what makes these people tick? Why do they seek power? Why are they obsessed with it? Why are they so good at getting it? And how can we kick them out and find a better crop of leaders for the future? There are two things about this book that I love above all. One of them is it has a great dedication, which is to all the nice non-psychopaths out there who should be in power but aren't. Any book with a good dedication is like a book I want to buy. And then it also allows me to literally utter my two favorite words in the English language. The question in the center of the book, put pithily, is does power corrupt or are corrupt people drawn to power? And which allows me to say false binary, which is really what the book is kind of about. The answer is yes and yes. I mean, I'd like you to say more about that. You kind of laid out the kind of template for how you address it, but just go directly to that question. You know, it is the case that power corrupts. It's also the case that corrupt people are drawn to power. And those two things are not, it's not coincidental that those two things have the kind of interactive kind of qualities that they have and they, that they create this kind of dynamic system. Yeah. And it's funny because whenever I talk to people about this research, when I was writing the book, they'd always say something like, oh yeah, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I already know about that. And I'm like, you know, the, the actual reality of this is way more complicated. And it's because we ignore this intermediary step of the system itself. So yes, power corrupts. Yes, corruptible people seek power. You can either take those tendencies and put them on overdrive, or you can counteract them. And that's where the system comes in. A great study that I think illustrates this really well is this study that I cite in the book where they have these students roll a dice 42 times, and then they write down the scores of their dice rolls. Every time they get a six, they get money, but they get to self-report so they can lie. When they did the study in India, where the civil service is notoriously corrupt, the people who lied on their dice rolls were the people who wanted to go into the bureaucracy to get kickbacks and bribes. When they did the same study in Denmark, exactly the opposite occurred. The people who were really clean and honest and reported diligently everything, you know, had the normal number of sixes, those people wanted to be civil servants. So the system, you know, if it's rotten, it's gonna attract rotten people. Now, when it comes to the psychopaths and so on, there's different remedies for different problems. So if you have a rotten psychopathic person, which by the way, people with these traits are much better at getting power and they're also obsessed with it, those people have a different remedy than the good person who gets turned bad by power because the rotten psychopath isn't going to behave well. No matter what you do, you can try to constrain them, but they're not gonna become virtuous. Whereas the person who just gets power hungry over time, and you know, for our previous discussion, I think people like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson have been warped by the world that they're in where all the incentives line up for them to lie to their viewers and make a ton of money off of it. There's a different remedy than if they're just straight up psychopaths who have broken brains. And so I think this is the, the crux of the book is that we have this sort of what I call the tip of the iceberg problem, which is we focus on the leaders we have and we say, why are they behaving so badly? And we don't think about the systems and we don't think about the people who never seek power. And we don't think about all the reasons why good people don't get into power. You know, there's a quote by Douglas Adams, one of my favorite authors, who says, you know, effectively, anybody who can get themselves made president is automatically disqualified from doing the job. And there's some truth to that, that the ways you get ahead in the systems we've built require you to behave in, in corrupt or corruptible ways. So I combined all of these different things from the research world with some encounters that were quite strange at times. I mean, one of the weirdest things I did for the book that I, I enjoyed immensely was and learned a lot from was I took a ski lesson with Paul Bremer, the guy who ran Iraq in 2003 to 2004. Yeah. He's now a ski instructor in Vermont, believe it or not. So he says, you know, we'll go and chat on the chairlift and we'll go to my house afterwards. And so on. it was funny for me because I grew up in Minnesota and I was a downhill ski racer. So I was actually a better skier than him, but <laughs> I still took the lesson. Probably a better so, nation builder too, but we'll go on. We'll leave that aside <laughs> for now. Yeah. I mean, well, th this thing, the thing that was interesting about talking to him and it gets to this point about systems is, you know, he served with distinction 
attention when he was ambassador to Norway and Malawi, and everybody seemed to think he was you know, very effective. Right. Second, he inherits a dictatorship. He floats the idea of shooting looters in order to establish order. Right. Now, I mean, that is a very unsavory proposal. Mm. And what he said to me, which I think he's right about, is he's like, yeah, I mean, I didn't like proposing it either, but this wasn't Norway. I, all of a sudden, I inherited a dictatorship. I started thinking about things that I never would have thought about before. And it's a very, very simple lesson that the context that we find ourselves in changes our behavior very quickly. And I think that's one of the, the key lessons that I would say is fairly portable to U.S. politics right now, where you see people like Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham do an about face in you know a matter of days or weeks right. precisely because the context and the incentives they face has caused them as power obsessed individuals to change their behavior. So Anne, one of the great things you always bring to every conversation that I've ever heard you in, just going all the way back to, I believe the first time we ever met when we both worked for The Economist magazine and you were bound for great intellectual distinction and I was bound for gutter journalism, was you know this kind of international comparative element to this, right? Because we all Americans, we all just obsess about America. We don't really see the world through the eyes of someone who's lived in a bunch of different places, including Poland, where you live now and where you've been in and out of for, for a very long time. So you know th this is the obvious question that arises out of what Brian's talking about, the role of systems, right? So you know, for generations, the American system was supposed to be the good system. We were the model system. This was the system that was, you know, we if we looked at, at countries where despots, authoritarians, tyrants had, there was recent history where those people were in power, including, you know, a lot of the Eastern Bloc, including a lot of places in Africa, including a lot of places, you know, you take your pick. Even noting that American exceptionalism has always been overblown, it is still the case that much of the world looked up to the American system and said, if you had to say, you know, good, admirable versus bad. And the thing that you should avoid, people said the American system was a good one and it had flaws, but a good one, not a bad one. Yet authoritarianism is on the march here. So what is it that if, if systems matter and you look around the world at places where the American system, which now seems to be faltering in this regard and other places where there are more, much more recent histories of kind of oppression that now seem to be maybe better how does one kind of untangle that relative to the kinds of issues that Brian's raising? I mean, I think in America, there were a lot of unwritten rules to our system and a lot of assumptions that that we made. And as as some of those rules begin to disappear or broke down, we didn't fully notice. I mean, for example, our party system, you know, for a long time, there were constraints inside the parties. I mean, the leadership of the Democratic or the Republican Party had real influence on how candidates were chosen, for example. And that that began to break down and somehow it didn't matter until it mattered. And we simply didn't notice. But, you know, one of the things that's quite useful to do is to look around the world and to look at democracies that are more functional than ours and maybe have been more functional for a long time and to ask why we didn't ever learn any lessons from them. I mean, there's a long kind of academic debate about whether presidential or parliamentary systems are better, for example, right. and whether first-past-the-post voting or proportional representation voting produced different kinds of outcomes. And of course, the answer is that they do produce different outcomes, and they do create different political cultures. And this is what I really liked about Brian's book, actually, is that he focuses on, you know, what are the rules of each system, and how do you get ahead in the system, and do the rules encourage good behavior or bad behavior? And I think that the American system began to encourage bad behavior some time ago, but because of unwritten rules, we didn't notice. Right. Um, but part of the problem in America is, is one you alluded to, which is that we're so convinced that we are exceptional and that our system is the best, you know, that the idea that we would, you know, I don't know, look at how the Norwegians select their 
leadership, you know, let alone the Germans, and learn some lessons from it is still pretty anathema in Washington and, and across the country. So as I said, I think the success of America, particularly the success in the Cold War, gave us this conviction that we didn't need to you know, look at what was happening inside our party system, look at what was happening inside our electoral system, try and learn lessons from other places and make, you know, necessary reforms. You know, we were somehow misled precisely by the success and by that conviction, you know, that we were so admired everywhere. Yes. I mean, there's another element of this too, which is that I think not enough attention is paid. And this I say is I'm married to a politician. My husband is a Polish politician. Not enough attention is paid to how in the, even in just the last decade, how unpleasant being in politics or being in public life has, has become. become. Yeah. Even, you know, minor people like the three of us, I mean, certainly me, have experienced what it's like to be attacked online by people who hate you and who want to kill you and who threaten you in various ways. And people who are who are even more prominent have that nonstop. Yeah. And people who are, you know, at the center of politics are, you know, every photograph taken of them, if they make an accidental facial grimace or if they leer at someone, you know, something that seems leering through a particular camera lens, they can be caught off guard. Um, You know, this 24-hour surveillance of people, 24-hour news, you know, news time that needs to be filled with something. That has had, I think, a real discouraging effect on people who in the past might have gone into public life. Yes. The question of kind of like, why would any good normal person want to go into politics? The answer is they don't. You almost have to be a kind of narcissist or a glutton for punishment, even to want to be local county commissioner. If you look at what's happened, particularly in the last few months in the U.S. to people who are on school boards, which used to be a kind of nice thing that people did as a way of contributing to their communities. I mean, you can now receive death threats or have people camping outside your house just for that. And that's not about voting systems or Congress. It's about the nature of media. It's partly about social media, but it's also just about what's become acceptable and how vilification of people in public life has become acceptable. And that's a big part of the story, too. So it's like basically at this point, you know, we're like, you have to be a narcissist or a sociopath or a psychopath or a budding kleptocrat to want to be in, in political office, which brings us to the person that, that Brian, you didn't want to write about in your book. You didn't put his name in the book, but you don't get to not talk about him here. Donald Trump. I want to play a little piece of Don, Donald Trump went on tour with Bill O'Reilly, another sociopath, narcissist, psychopath, kleptocrat. Bill O'Reilly and Donald Trump decided to do a little tour. It did not go all that well, but they talked about uh, something that bears directly on this question. And then I want to come back to some of the points Ann just made and ask you about how we got to Trump through the lens of your book. But let's listen to Trump and O'Reilly and then we'll talk about it. Who was your favorite world leader to speak with? Who did you enjoy speaking with the most? The ones I did the best with were the tyrants. And they all say, oh, he loves tyrants. He wants to be a tyrant now. I just, for whatever reason, I got along great with Putin. I got along great with President Xi of China. I got along great with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. And isn't that good? So there's Trump basically saying, hey, I got along well with the tyrants, you know? And it's not because I want to be a tyrant. It's just, you know, I just happen to like Putin and Xi and Kim Jong-un. Those are like my guys, you know, my bros. And here's the question that I want to ask about it, Brian, is this. I've covered every presidential election since 1992, really 1988. And, you know, 
there was never anything like Donald Trump who came close to being the Republican nominee. And even as we watch the polarization of the parties, the tribalism, the rise of populism, the rise of cultural conservatism, white grievance, racism, xenophobia, all those things, that part of the party on the Republican side has gotten bigger over the course of the last 30 years. He still had Mitt Romney as the nominee in 2012. So nobody sensible. I mean, I thought Donald Trump had a chance of being competitive in 2016. But the idea that Donald Trump would become president of the United States was even for people who are close students of the system was like, that's not possible. That man is too much of a buffoon. He's too nakedly opportunistic. He's too this, he's too that, all the various things we said about Trump. So what is it that if systems matter as much as you say, and then Anne expanded in the way that she did, how do you account exactly for a party that nominates John McCain, Mitt Romney, and then turns to Donald Trump? What in that system suddenly in 2016 changed that much? Because that's not a, a marginal change. That's a dramatic change to allow that man to become first the Republican nominee and easily the Republican nominee. Just blew everyone out of the water. It wasn't even a close run thing. And then to become president of the United States. What can we learn from that? especially as we think about going forward and trying to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, I think the, the short answer, to put it in Republican terms, there was a supply side change, which meant that all of a sudden there was a, an authoritarian on the ballot. I think there was a demand for that person for a long time in the party. I also think when we talk about systems, there is an intersection between social media and the accessibility of getting to people without party control and the breakdown of sort of party constraints. I mean, Republicans held each other accountable for a very long time. So did Democrats. They stopped doing that. Their shame broke down, right? I mean, the things that Donald Trump did, if he had done them in the 1990s or early 2000s, almost certainly would have led to mass calls for resignations from Republicans and also probably would have led to a self-imposed resignation because of, of shame, which is broken down in our system. So, you know, I'm quite worried about that because it also means that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who would have been fringe figures trying to please, you know, Kevin McCarthy right. and Mitch McConnell for years so they could finally get their slot on primetime news, they're just immediately stars now because they can circumvent the party completely and become their own primetime star on social media, which means that the incentives are exactly the opposite. You don't want to please the party, you want to run against it. You want to force it to be more extreme. Now one of the things that I talk about in the book that, that you know, it was illuminating for me to do this research because it was a new area for me, was turning the mirror back on society and saying, why do we have this tendency to elect strongmen? Right. Why do we bring strongmen into, into authority? And there's a lot of evidence, which you know, political scientists don't grapple with, that there are some aspects of evolutionary psychology that lead to this. So the idea is basically that 20,000 years ago, our brains are effectively the same. There's not enough time for them to have evolved. But 20,000 years ago, if you were in a crisis moment, turning to a big man, a strong man, was adaptive. It helped you survive because it would help with hunting, it would help with fighting, whatever it was. And there's some evolutionary psychologists who argue this template exists in our brains. It might be latent for some of us, especially if we're a bit more enlightened, we think more critically and more rationally, but it can be reactivated by somebody. And this is why Putin has the shirtless picture. It's why Trump has the American carnage speech, because he says, you know, here's this dystopian crisis and I alone can fix it. That's activating the psychological impulse to have a strong man take control when you believe that a crisis has come. And this sort of combination of the dynamics I said with the party, along with the fact that the pace of change and the disorientation that people feel 
in the 21st century is so profound that I think it's very easy to activate that sense of crisis. So, you know, there's not one simple answer, but I think that part of it is that there's just been a blocked attempt. There's never been somebody like Donald Trump on the ballot for a major presidential election. And I think if there had been, they might have won in the past. So some of it is that control. Some of it is the latent desire and some of it is our Stone Age brains. I read those chapters in the book about, you know, how it's easier to be a leader if you look like a leader and, you know, the various physical and physiological qualities. And I got to say, like, I look at Donald Trump and I just don't get it. I'm glad he's never done the shirtless picture like Putin. Thank God. I think we can all be, be grateful for that. But I just don't really, you know, his his physical and evolutionary appeal escapes me. But um, I just don't have the imagine. I don't have the imagination to, to see the appeal. But if you look at the fan art, the fan art yes. is him like shirtless with a machine <laughs> gun, right? I, I mean, in like this muscular, I mean, you're you're totally right about it, but the one thing he is, he's definitely a big right. guy. Well, so it goes it, <laughs> you give it goes that. again to the delusion. And we'll take a break and and talk about that because again, Anne's Anne's most recent book, it's not really so much about the authoritarians as it is about the enablers of various kinds, whether that's intellectuals or in the media sphere or the propaganda sphere and other things. So we'll talk about that book on the other side, and I think those are important to understanding some of the challenges we face and and how we got to where we are. So we'll take a break right now here on Hell and High Water with Brian Kloss and Anne Applebaum, and we'll be right back. And we're back for the last part of Hell and High Water with Ann Applebaum and Brian Kloss. And I want to play something, Anne, that I'm sure you've probably discussed a hundred times because it's the kind of thing that did not get nearly as much attention in America as I thought it should have. But it just blew my mind when Tucker Carlson decided he was going to take a little trip to Hungary and hang out with Viktor Orban. He was there for a week, I guess a week, and interviewed Orban and talked about him a lot. But this opened, I mean, really... Even as crazy as shit has gotten in the United States, this was the thing I never thought I would see on an American cable news network, although Tucker has gone past this as he's gone into the realm of, of now stipulating that the January 6th insurrection was like a false flag operation like that the FBI somehow fomented. Anyway, let's listen to Tucker Carlson back in August of last year when he introduced his his special tour, his week, his love fest with Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary. Of the nearly 200 different countries on the face of the earth, precisely one of them has an elected leader who publicly identifies as a Western-style conservative. His name is Viktor Orban. He's the Prime Minister of Hungary. What does Viktor Orban believe? Just a few years ago, his views would have seemed moderate and conventional. He thinks families are more important than banks. He believes countries need borders. For saying these things out loud, Orban has been vilified. Left-wing NGOs have denounced him as a fascist, a destroyer of democracy. Last fall, Joe Biden suggested he's a totalitarian dictator. So, Anne, your, your book is Twilight of Democracy, the Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. I would suggest that that seductive lure has been on display in Hungary and other places that you're very familiar with in, in very recent times. Can you explain what's going on with that? For anybody who isn't familiar with Viktor Orban, I'd love to hear you talk about him a little bit, but also why Viktor Orban is attractive to the highest rated cable news host on American television. So you're right that it's very strange. Also, what you just heard Tucker Carlson say about Viktor Orban was, of course, a lie. The idea that Viktor Orban cares more about families than about banks is absurd. I mean, this is somebody who has personally enriched himself and enriched everybody around him while in power. He's also lied consistently about who is and isn't led into Hungary. You can actually buy a visa to Hungary. You can buy residency in Hungary if you have enough money. So that's all very dishonest. 
What is true is that Orban has changed quite a bit and he has different status than he used to. He's somebody who started out claiming to be a liberal. When he was much younger, he was a, a kind of liberal atheist, uh, anti-communist. Uh, and that's how he portrayed himself in his younger days. But he's also somebody who turned out to be an opportunist. And as he went into politics after the fall of communism, he he decided that liberalism wasn't going to get him enough votes. And the party that he that he emulated was actually German Christian Democrats. And he sought to be like them. He thought that would give him a bigger voice in Hungary. And he became a sort of, I guess, for a while, he was a kind of recognizable European conservative. He became disillusioned with that world, partly because he also discovered that if you're a European conservative, that means that you might lose an election because European conservatives believe in democracy. And Orban did lose one election, having, having been prime minister, and he found that experience very unpleasant, and he decided he didn't want to repeat it. And so what's really notable about Viktor Orban, uh, certainly at least in European politics, is that he's really, I suppose you could say he's the first democratic party leader inside Europe who converted his party into an autocratic party and converted his country into an autocracy. And so the reason why, you know, as Carlson says, you know, people don't like him and he's denounced as a fascist is because he has used fascist style techniques in order to stay in power. So, you know, Hungary is a country where something like 95% of the media is now owned either by the government directly or by friends of the government through kind of oligarchs who are close to the ruling party. Um, he has undermined a whole series of institutions, starting with the courts, but moving through the civil service. He has consistently, constantly made sort of endless changes to the constitution that will allow him to remain in power. And above all, he's used very virulent propaganda with echoes from the 1930s, describing all kinds of threats that supposedly are coming to Hungary from non-existent immigration. I mean, there's almost no immigration into Hungary, and yet Orban has created this fear of immigration and propagated it, both fear of Muslim immigration and in particular, you know, throwing some anti-Semitic overtones into that as well, sort of echoing right. old tropes, often by including George Soros into the mix, right. as if George Soros is somehow responsible for that as well. But, you know, I imagine that what Carlson admires about Orban and it's what a lot of former, I would say not American conservatives, but former conservatives who are now radicals also admire about Orban is precisely the fact that because he changed the rules, because he's made it almost impossible for anybody else to win. And by the way, he's an election coming up soon in which he has a very formidable, genuinely conservative opponent who has unified right. the opposition and who is an old style, real conservative, not an autocrat. You know, we'll see whether he allows himself to lose. I suspect not. I suspect we'll have to have open falsification of electoral results. But because he's managed to stay in power, he's created some admiration on the part of American conservatives. Right. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, he's not very important. It's a very small country. Right. You know, and the idea that an American talk show host like Tucker Carlson would go out of his way to admire the leader of a tin pot dictatorship in Central Europe is in itself rather weird. But he is interesting because he's, the, as I said, the first member of the transatlantic alliance, Hungary's in NATO, and the first member of the European Union who have openly broken with democracy. Right. And he now has one or two imitators, including some here in Poland and some elsewhere on the far right in other European countries. But it's that break with democracy that makes Orban exceptional and nothing else. There's nothing about him that is 
conservative in the old sense of the word conservative in the United States. There's nothing about him that resembles Ronald Reagan. There's nothing about him that resembles, you know, Edmund Burke or any of the other conservative philosophers that people used to read. So yes, it is, you know, Anne just said it's weird that Tucker would be interested in in this person, this kind of petty despot in a tin pot dictatorship. And I think obviously it's weird. I, I agree with her. It's weird. It's also sort of telling. And in your book, In Twilight of Democracy, you tell this story about, at the very beginning of the book, you tell the story about a New Year's Eve party that you hosted in 1999 and having this kind of group of kind of center, what you, we used to think of as center right folks around the table. And kind of, you know, classical liberals with the small L economist version of classical liberals around the table, but basically center right. Some people who would have liked Thatcher, some people would have liked Blair, but, you know, that kind of crowd. And then 20 years later, half of them have gravitated towards an openly authoritarian party in Poland. And and here's Tucker Carlson, who a guy, uh, you could say the same thing about Tucker, you know, who used to be, you know, a kind of bow tie wearing kind of cuck in a lot of ways, and now is like worshiping the feet of, of Viktor Orban and worships at the feet of Donald Trump. So it's like this phenomenon of what used to be kind of the respectable conservative class, the kind of mainstream conservatives, let's just call them that, being seduced increasingly by authoritarians and autocrats of all stripes. And actually, not just within their own countries, but leaving kind of seeking out models like, hey, I'm from America. Let's go look at the tin pot dictator over here in Hungary and bring some lessons back and broadcast it back to our viewers who we think somehow will think this is all fine. I guess I ask both of you, Brian, I'll just throw it to you just really quickly. And then, Anne, you could talk more about the party. But it seems to me that that, you know, as we move away from the question of who becomes an autocrat and how do we make these autocrats and why are we vulnerable to them? But what are the systems, especially in the media, which is so powerful and pervasive, that trajectory, that trend that's happening, not just in America, but all over the world, it seems to me worthy of, of comment and study and focus because it really is something that, you know, is, is new, it feels like to me in this last, you know, 10-ish years. Yeah, I mean, very briefly, I think the the main takeaway from my perspective is that authoritarian leaders like Orban, like Trump, etc., have mastered media manipulation or media suppression. And one of the tests that exists in democracies is whether the media just decides to continue its old ways or decides to be openly pro-democracy and pro-truth. And in December of 2021, I wrote a column about this where I said, look, this is something what we have to make a core of journalistic responses to proto-authoritarian or authoritarian movements is to say, it's not going to be both sides. It's not going to be, they say this, they say that. It's going to be, this is the truth and this is democracy. And I think you know, a lot of places have failed that test. And in Hungary, of course, they just got shut down or, or bought. So Tucker Carlson's of the world are propagandists who enable the breakdown of democracy. And I think that creates even more pressure on the rest of us to be extra careful about how we tell the truth and how we don't equate two movements that are fundamentally different. And what is it that you think got into your friends who sat at you with you at that dinner party in 1999? What changed in them, the kind of enablers who make tyrants possible in media, in academia, in bureaucracies? You observe this thing happening all around you in Poland. People who used to be your friends, you now, as you say in the book, you cross the street to avoid talking to them. And they would be ashamed to admit they were at your house at this New Year's Eve party. What happened to them and, and what happened, and I don't want to go deep into Poland per se, but but I think, again, there are things that were happening there that are happening in other places. And so what are the kinds of dynamics that were in play there that allowed for that kind of social 
almost anthropological kind of transformation that you describe in that kind of set piece opening in the book? I don't really think there's a single answer, but I do think there are some common elements. One of them is some kind of disappointment. And either it's a disappointment with the direction the country has gone. You know, this wasn't what I wanted in 1989, or this wasn't the America that I imagined, you know, we would get back in the Reagan years. Sometimes it's personal disappointment. In Poland, this is very common that people who didn't have the career that they thought they deserved to have. You know, they were in the anti-communist opposition, but in the meritocracy that developed after 1989, they didn't have a place in it or they didn't fit in. And they developed some resentment about that. And there's quite a lot of that as well. There's also a, a form of nostalgia. You know, the feeling that the present isn't what I want it to be. The past was better. I mean, that's what Make America Great Again meant. It meant we were better in the past that I remember is better. I want it back. And very often this is connected to a rejection of the present and in particular often a rejection of the dissonance and the anger and the division that they see all around them. And sometimes it's racial division. There's a version of this. And sometimes it's political division. And there seems to be some a longing for some kind of unity, you know. Right. There was some moment in the past when we were unified and now we're all broken up and divided and we want to recreate that feeling of unity and homogeneity once again. And the leaders who have been able to appeal to that and the propagandists, including some people I know, who've been able to articulate that have been very successful, I think not accidentally in an era when so many structures are disintegrating, when, you know, e even just the transition from broadcast media to social media um, has been for a lot of people extremely confusing yeah. and dismaying. You know, the globalization has played a role as well, not in the kind of cliche way that people usually say it, but in the sense of people feel this loss of control. You know, somebody can make a decision in Beijing, you know, or in Brussels or in Washington and my shop will close or my factory will close. Yeah. And as I say, propagandists and intellectuals and others who found a way to tap into that longing in recent years have been very successful. And they have been, you know, partly, maybe even mostly responsible, both for the rise of the far right in Europe and for the rise of Trumpism, you know, in a different way, but in some parallel ways with for, for Brexit in the United Kingdom and for the rise of authoritarian movements in Eastern Europe, but actually all across Europe. I mean, really, the only difference between Poland and Hungary is that autocratic parties won there and were thus able to play out their fantasy of complete control. Believe me, there are similar parties in France, there are parties in Spain, there are parties yep. in Italy that would yeah. like to do yeah. the same yeah. if they could, and who knows, maybe they will someday. So as I bring this kind of to an end, I want to just cast our minds forward here. And we've kind of teed up throughout this whole conversation kind of where we're headed. And, you know, The Atlantic, your staff writer there, you know, did this whole, I, I referenced earlier, did a whole kind of issue focused on the fragility of American democracy and the fight for it going forward. Bart Gelman wrote a long piece that was much commented on in December about, you know, how Donald Trump is kind of moving to set up to learn from the mistakes of the failed coup in 2020 in order to execute a successful coup in 2024, if, if need be. As a comment, this has been a kind of a, a burgeoning thing over the course of the last six months or so. Bill Maher talked about it on his show on the circus, my show on Showtime. We did a whole episode called Coup 2.0. So these pieces have been coming together. Gilman really pulls it all together in a great way. 
One of the things he says in that piece is that if you look at public opinion research, the, the people who are the hardcore insurrectionists, the one irreducible thing about them is that they came from places where a white population is dropping. And so there's this racial component to it. But the other thing in this story that was so striking to me and that takes us to the next level, I think, as we look at 2022-2024, was not all the stuff that's been reported about the stuff Trump is doing, purging the Republican Party, changing state election boards, putting power in, in the hands of, of Trumpists instead of in the hands of nonpartisan election officials, trying to how will you voter nullification, what will happen in terms of who gets counted, the voter suppression, voter, all that stuff, all is super important and super interesting. The thing in Gelman's piece that hit me most was this question about the rising openness to and eagerness for political violence. And I want to play this one clip of Gelman talking about that, about just the numbers here, numbers that I cited the other day. I meet the press and, of course, most of the right wing went crazy and now proving their propensity for violence want to kill me for having said these things. But let's let's play Gelman talking about these numbers and then we'll talk about the implications of them if we believe them to be true. Robert Pate at the University of Chicago has done polling that says there is a group of Americans who believe two things. One, that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. And two, that the use of violence is justified to restore Trump to power. Not might be, not we might be coming to a point when it, it use of violence is justified. That group of Americans numbers about 21 million. There are 21 million Americans who are part of a mass political movement uh, that is conspiracy-minded, and supports the use of violence uh, for political ends. Whenever I talk about my fear of political violence in America and that the newness of it, at least in my lifetime as a routine thing, you know, there it's right, it's right that that African-Americans point out to me, they say, you know, there's been political violence in America for a long time. And Native Americans can point to it's not the first time we've seen political violence in a systemic way in the United States. It's not new in that sense. It is the case, though, that unlike I think, and you probably were living in London around the time that I was in our economist overlap, you know, when there were IRA bombings on a relatively frequent basis where the tube would be shut down and you'd have to deal with the fact that there was either a threatened bombing or an actual bombing in London, you know, every few weeks in a part of the early 1990s. And that was, you know, unnerving, but not that long ago. And there are obviously places in the world where political violence is pretty routine. That's not been the case in our lifetimes in America, where there's been routine political violence. And certainly there's not been a case in our lifetimes where 21 million people are ready to take up, according to this research that Gelman cites, ready to take up, open to taking up arms or supportive of taking up arms, whatever you words you want to use are embracing it in theory, if not themselves personally. That is a, I mean, if you believe that data, that's a fucking scary thing set against the context of what Trump is doing on the political level, on the insider level, on the propaganda ecosystem that we've been talking about. So Brian, I ask you, A, do you believe that research? Does that strike you as tenable and as plausible? If you do, is it as alarming as I think it is? And then what can be done about it, if anything, as we head towards you know, these two elections, 2022 and 2024, that seem like they could be pretty cataclysmic if things go the wrong way. Yeah, I, I do believe it. And I, I think it's just as alarming, if not more alarming than the way you've portrayed it. I think it's very, very dangerous. You know, when you talked about them as conspiracists, this is really important to it because there is a huge part of the Republican Party that is driven by conspiracism and conspiracy theories. And one of the things we know a lot about conspiracy theorists is they tend to have what's called a Manichaean worldview, that there are black and white forces in, in the world. There is good and evil. 
And it, it's reducible to that. It's that simple. There's a lot of tropes around this with conspiracism that, that relate to it. Now, the bad guys in history never think they're the bad guys, right? We have this also from mass atrocity research. When you have mass violence perpetrated, a lot of people believe they're doing it for the good of the nation. They believe they're standing up for some sort of broader principle. When you look at people who have interviewed those who have perpetrated mass violence, they say this. They say, I thought I was being a patriot. And so what's really dangerous here is this combination of lies and conspiracy theories that casts people like Biden and the Democrats, not just as illegitimate, but as an existential threat to the way of life that is supposed to be embedded in the Constitution. Because if you believe that, if you take that as a given, then you start to understand the worldview of somebody who says, if I think this is a fundamental threat to the United States, it's a national security threat, therefore, I have to act. And the only way to fight fire with fire is with violence. So you can put yourself in that warped mind. And that's what I think those 21 million, you know, roughly Americans have done is they've They've believed this and they've been primed for a really long time with phrases that I think didn't sound insidious at the time, but have built up towards a level of insidious that now the Trump movement is tapping into. For example, real Americans, right? The idea that certain parts of the country are legitimate and real and other parts of the country are not. That sort of language combined with this idea of illegitimacy and the idea that, you know, it's an existential threat to the country. And this is combined with things like critical race theory is totally changing what your children are going to learn about the United States amplifies this tendency to believe that violence is therefore justified. What we can do about it is very simple. You hold mass accountability for people who are behind January 6th as the first step because it is a testing ground. If you can take over the Capitol, orchestrate an attempted coup plot, and get away with it, 2024 is going to be very dangerous. So the first step is to simply make sure that the people who tried to do this in the past pay for it. And there's a line drawn in the sand that says any form of political violence puts you in jail for a really long time. And not just the people who went into the Capitol, but the people who told them to go there. I want you to, I'm going to give you the last word and I want you to weigh in on all of that. And on the question of political violence, I, I cited the IRA thing from the early 1990s for a reason, because in Gelman's piece, someone makes the analogy and says essentially that the percentages that are in this research that suggest an openness to or an eagerness for or a tolerance of or an embrace of whatever political violence in order to right what they see as the wrong of Joe Biden's illegitimate installation as president, that's how they see it, that that percentage is basically about what the percentage was in Northern Ireland in the early 1970s that embraced political violence. And that spawned decades of routine political violence, which in London was was a small aftershock of what was actually going on with the troubles in Northern Ireland itself. And I, I cite it because people in America like laugh at you when they say, oh, you know, that could never happen here. And I say, you know, these percentages are the same as they were in that period. And look what happened in Northern Ireland in that period within our lifetimes, within our memories, within my adult memory. So I, I guess I ask you, you know, to weigh in on what Brian just said. At this moment, what's your alarm level over the prospect that January 6th was the beginning of a period of prolonged, sustained, routine political violence in America? And again, I'll repeat the question I asked Brian because I want your view on it. Is what, if anything, can be done about it here in the United States? So it's very interesting and somewhat amusing that you bring up Northern Ireland because I actually wrote this article. It was about a year ago, maybe maybe nine months to a year ago. 
in which I explicitly compared America and Northern Ireland, and I asked exactly this question, which was, are there things that we can learn from the resolution of the Northern Irish conflict that would apply to the U.S.? Got to read that. And particularly for exactly the reason that you stated, which is that it doesn't take very many people. I mean, there was something like, you know, at its height, there was something like 500 active members of the IRA, and that was enough to destabilize the whole province uh, indefinitely. And, you know, we're a far bigger country and, you know, it would take a lot more than that. But even so, the, the basic principle is exactly right. You know, it doesn't take that many people who are committed to violence. And we have these groups in America. We have militia groups. We have groups who are explicit, you know, kind of paramilitary groups that are explicitly committed to violence. And we also have a gun problem of a kind that Northern Ireland didn't have. Did not have, right. I mean, they were using Semtex. Um, and explosives, which was bad enough, but, you know, they didn't have mass availability of of automatic weapons, and we do. And so, yes, I do think it's highly probable. And, and you know, the, the resemblance is actually in the nature of the conflict. So the, the problem in Northern Ireland was that there was an existential and irreconcilable conflict. In other words, are we Irish or are we British? And actually, there wasn't, it, or it felt for a long time that there was no way to resolve that. You were one or the other, and there was no right. in between. And that it was the national definition that couldn't be resolved that created the problem. I mean, eventually, interestingly, in Northern Ireland, the solution was the European Union, where you could sort of be British and Irish, and you could have two passports, and you could right. move around. This is why people were so disturbed by the possibility that Brexit might reignite conflict in, in Northern Ireland, which indeed it, it might. But the other part of the solution, and if, you know, if you look at people who did these so-called conflict resolution work in Northern Ireland in the in the years after they reached these various power sharing agreements, was first of all they created methods of power sharing. So, okay, we can't agree whether we're British or Irish, but we will find some way to swap off to share power. But also, they found ways to get communities to talk about other things. So, could we talk about? you know, the local roads or the local community center? And could we build something here that would make a difference to the community? I mean, I had a really interesting conversation with somebody who does exactly this kind of work who said the problem in the United States is that building a road or a community center in a, in a rich country isn't enough of an investment to bring the country together. Although, by the way, I do think that Biden's focus on infrastructure that's partly what it's about, is the idea that if you can get people talking about roads and railroads, and bridges, then they won't be talking about how we can kill each other. I mean, we can disagree about the road and the railroad, but we're un it's not an existential disagreement like the one over, right. you know, what kind of country we are. So some of the solutions do involve finding ways, again, of power sharing. Some of the solutions involve getting everybody to focus on different subjects. You know, I had hoped for a long time that the pandemic might be that kind of subject. Mm. You know, since we all needed to solve it together, there would be some, we'll just at least put up arms for a while and, you know, solve it, and then we can get back to arguing. But of course, the reverse yeah. happened, which is the pandemic itself became politicized yes. in a really horrifying way, actually. Yes. You know, the de degree to which the right now basically wants the pandemic to continue so that it's a problem for President Biden is a move of such horrifying cynicism. I wouldn't have believed it if you told me that that was going to happen, you know, even even three or four years ago. Don't say that on television anytime soon. You'll get more of those death threats that we both get when we say things like that. I'm pretty accustomed to that by now. <laughs> I'm just, no, I know. I just, I just, I, it happened to me the other day. I made this kind of a similar point and man, there it all came across the transom again. Boy, people are just, they don't like hearing the truth about some of these yes, things. Yes, yes. So I do worry about violence. And as I said, I worry about the argument about the existential nature of the country. What kind of country are we becoming 
central to politics instead of yes. questions like how much money should we spend on social security? Totally. You know, if we can talk about how much money we could spend on social security, we don't have to all agree about that. We can have, you know, I don't know, there can be a wide range of views. There can be libertarians and conservatives and liberals and even and, and a left. And, and yet that want, you know, but we aren't killing each other. Yeah. And so, you know, as, as much as politicians can move the conversation back that way, the better. But I do agree with Brian that some form of accountability for what has happened needs to play itself out in the very short amount of time that we have left. Or, you know, we're going to find after November 2022 that the narrative is completely reversed. And January 6th is going to be remembered as a moment of, you know, great triumph and victory for the right side. And by the way, I wouldn't exclude the possibility that you could get violence on the left as well. Oh, or whatever, sure, sure, the sure. Anti-Trump, particularly sure. if there's a perception either in 2022 or 2024 that the election was stolen. It was stolen from the right. Yes. And, you know, and, and Chris Krebs talks about the anti-democratic death spiral and, you know, these things escalate. That's kind of the part of the problem is once one side becomes politically violent, the other side almost by necessity. And you end up not being able to, I mean, you can point out who started it, but it kind of doesn't matter once that downward spiral or upward conflagration gets ignited. It's just horrible. A couple things to just say, I'm going to let you guys go. Uh, first of all, thank you for doing this. You guys, everybody in the world should should read the books, Brian Class's Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, and Applebaum's slightly older but really just continually essential Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Let us hope that there is accountability. And the one thing is that, that I, I don't think about it enough, and Anne, you made this point, you know, when you're talking about existential stuff, that's the side of an unhealthy democracy. It's like if the, if the democracy is healthy, you're talking about, you know, what's the best way to distribute, you know, healthcare? If the democracy is in trouble, it's when you're talking about like, what kind of a country are we? I would like to stop having those discussions and start having more discussions about like, should we have, you know, should there be an individual mandate for healthcare? I remember when that was a big deal, right? It'd be nice, you know, what the margin, top marginal tax rate should be. These discussions we used to have all the time and never do anymore. Brian Class and Applebaum, thank you. And that is it for this episode of Hell and High Water. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Ann Applebaum and Brian Kloss for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us, rate us, and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer, Stephanie Stender, our post-producer, and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell, our executive producer. 